Hey, Louis. Hey, Tom. Well, welcome to the uh, second episode of the ICO podcast. And uh, thanks for joining us this morning, Tom. Um, thanks for having me. No, not at all. No. Absolutely. So, um, well, obviously, we've we've known each other for a sort of few years. I've been following on Instagram since we met. Because um, you, yeah. you, you did some filming for us, didn't you, for the, I think it was a National Enterprise Challenge competition. That's right. Yeah. So um, we were filming... Uh, um, uh, it was an apprentice graduate for their first graduate job, I believe. Um, and uh, yeah, that was back in 2014 now, which seems like eons ago, which is kind of wow. mad. Yeah, it was a while ago. Um, it, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, that was a kind of a very different type of filming that I'm used to now. Uh, but um, as we can like, you know, touch upon, um, it was extremely like, you know, beneficial, um, learned lots of things. And uh yeah, and I got to I got I got to meet yourself, so you know, positives, eh? <laughs> <laughs> and and obviously, yeah. since kind of following you on Instagram, I, I guess the the idea that is kind of portrayed about wildlife uh, filmmaking and and wildlife film photography is is this like super romantic thing. And and for those of you who are listening, Tom um, from his Instagram looks like he has the most incredible life. And, um, you know, 15-year-old me would have been super, super jealous of um, becoming a wildlife filmmaker. But, um, you know, so what got you into it um, and yeah. how did that journey progress? You know, how, how do you end up traveling the world filming animals for a living? Yeah, well, I think it's really important to kind of take it right back to, you know, school, really. Um, that's where the interest sort of grew. Um, and... I guess, funnily enough, I didn't actually want to become uh, a wildlife cameraman. It, it, it was it was kind of a thing that fell into my lap, uh, unfortunately, um, in terms of the idea. Um, anyway, um, obviously, I've had to work hard to get to where I am today, and uh, I'm not where I want to be yet, obviously. So there's obviously many, many, you know, decades of growth. Um, but the concept of 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 the, of, of this career. Um, really came, you know, second year of university. So I would have this was like 2010, 2011. Um, but for about a decade before that, my sole um, aim in life was to become an actor. That's what I wanted to get into. Um, acting was my life. Um, and I was an active member of a youth theatre group for uh, Bath. It was called Young People's Theatre. Um, and uh, we would often put on performances at the Theatre Royal Bath, which was just an incredible um, experience. And I really kind of got to grips from a really young age. I was a really shy, shy kid. So I think going into you know drama, that was my way of gaining back some type of social control, I, I guess. Um, I just got addicted uh, to the activity. I, I met my, you know, best friends through through uh, drama. We became so tightly, uh, you know, glued glued together as a pack. You know, I consider them almost, you know, um, family because we've, you know, been through so much on, you know, stage and screen and stuff. Um, so acting really was was my life. Like, I didn't really have any other goal apart from I want to act. I want to act, and it wasn't. It, and you know the goal was like you know, never to become a you know famous actor. It was just to just to lose lose myself on stage and just become someone else and uh, explore emotions through you know drama. Um, that was the aim because uh, I got such a kick out of it and I felt so you know satisfied and in a way it's a form of you know meditation I guess because it's it, it is an out of body experience. So um, that was my pure pure focus. Um, so. 
I think coming to the realization that I wanted to become, I, I didn't want to become an actor anymore was actually quite a tough, about from to 18, like I said, I was doing plays year in, year out, you know, two or three big old plays a year. Um, and then I wanted to go to um, drama school. And obviously there's a little bit of a stigma attached to that in, in case, in terms of, you know, job security, which is kind of ironic in the position I'm in now. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, I think I thought it was wise. Uh, I had a good chat with my parents, and I thought it was wise to go to um, university first. Uh, so drama was my first first love. My second love was biology. Um, anything to do with the environment, nature, animals, um, that was my obsession. And from a really young age, I mean, I was you know watching the very um, early Attenboroughs for for you know my generation anyway. Obviously, he you know goes right you know back. But, um, you know, life of mammals, life of birds, life of the private life of plants, life in the undergrowth, um, classics, in my opinion. Um, Planet Earth uh, came out in 2008, which kind of blew up the whole, you know, natural history, wildlife um, scene in, in terms of exposure, I think, to um, larger demographics. Um, but, you know, I was kind of, you know, watch it. And there was some amazing programs as well, I believe, on BBC Two, Big Cat Diary, um, and all also shows like you know the really well show with Chris Packham and um sure. and yeah. uh, Michaela Strachan of course classics classics um so I always had that kind of early interest in in um, you know wildlife film but I didn't ever for one for one moment think it was going to be um a career path that I was going to pursue um it was always the acting and then um I went to Bristol uh, University of Bristol to do biological sciences there um, which, again, for me, I didn't realise was quite a classic route into into wildlife film. That was just it's just a hangover of that of that course, essentially. I had no idea. Um, so uh, I guess I was lucky there. Um, but um, I got a drama scholarship when, um, when I went to the University of Bristol um, and it was it wasn't anything that I hoped it was to be. I mean, I was pretty disappointed in um in myself uh, as to how uh, as to how my perceptions of doing drama with uh, without the same group of people that I've been with for the past 10 years was was going to be like um, and that was quite a hard realization to come to terms with I was always I guess the outsider uh, because I was one of the only people that didn't do drama um, as their undergraduate degree I was doing biology so um, I kind of felt very much on the outside, on the periphery. Maybe uh, that wasn't the case, but in terms of myself, I kind of felt 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 that, and I kind of lost love with it. I, I kind of fell out of love with uh, you know drama, and uh, and that was tough because in my head, from the ages of, of you know eight to eighteen, I was like, that's what I'm I am going to do, and then to be suddenly struck with this idea that well, this isn't an idea, a complete reality that this isn't isn't for me. And now I'm doing a biological sciences degree, um, which is great. But it's like, okay, right now I'm going to actually try to find. I need to find some some sort of career that that I can actually use all the knowledge that I've you know gained over the past two two you know three years for it to not be a waste. I mean, it was never going to be a waste, but um, it was always going to be a form of a backup. And in a real sense, it it definitely was. <laughs> so I guess that was a good decision. Um, so I kind of had a bit of a moment uh, in second year of university. So this is 2010, which is 
fine. You know, everyone has those those moments of panic and stress and thinking, what, what the hell am I doing in my life? And um, so I kind of thought, right, well, um, I love telling stories. That's uh, that's at my core. That's at my roots. Um, that's what my whole up, upbringing has really been about in, you know, in terms of extracurricular activities. Um, how how can I utilize that? So I thought, okay, telling stories, biological sciences. I thought, well, you know, wildlife film, and it, it didn't take me too long to just have that epiphany moment. Um, and I thought, that's it, you know, wildlife film. I had no idea what it was to do with with wildlife film. That took many many years of progression and you know searching, um, but but knowing the sector that I wanted to just you know get into. That was a real epiphany moment. A few months after I had that, you know, realization moment that um, drama wasn't going to be my my career path. Um, so, okay, if so, um, well, prior to that, actually, Elizabeth White, who was a producer on Frozen Planet, um, and I'm sure all of you, you know, watching um, have at least heard of Frozen Planet. Um, it's an incredible uh, BBC landmark series. Uh, it came out around about 2012, I believe. Um, and for me, it's 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 my ab all all time favourite series. It is absolutely stunning, just because well, uh, it, obviously it has the you know polar thread that you know runs runs through. But the cinematography and the and the stories, the new stories they were introducing to the world there um, were completely groundbreaking. I mean, the orca wave wave washing um uh sequence where the orcas move as a pod together and work and work together as a team um to wave wash the seal off the ice float just blew me away so to have someone come into um into the university of bristol biological sciences building and just give a talk about how this was done and how she got into wildlife film i was just just there like that i was just in complete awe you know so i thought i've you know like, this is a great opportunity because for about Six six months to nine months prior to that, um, I knew this was kind of the uh, this was the career path that I wanted to go down. So um, I thought this is a great opportunity. Um, I was quite nervous going up to her, and I said, "Look, I've got no experience. I've just got interest. Um, can you help?" <laughs> and she said, "Well, there's an amazing course up at the University of Salford, um, Media City, UK, which is where a large." portion of the BBC and um, other um, um, other commissioners are um, and they do a MA course in wildlife documentary production um, maybe this is for you I said okay but I've got no experience just to you know reiterate I know nothing about like you know filming producing wildlife films um, I come from a really heavy acting background and she goes that's absolutely fine I mean I knew nothing uh, about film per se um, you know Liz's background she has a PhD so it, it was very much academia so I thought okay fine um, in in my head kind of you know getting wildlife film you had to be a photographer or a director of films or some type of film um, element in your life from a young age but um, that perception was definitely broken. Um, so that was a really um, uplifting uh, moment for me, and I'll, I'll never ever forget it. So I went to the University of Salford, uh, did my finals, um, then went up to the University of Salford after. I didn't take a, a, a gap year or anything. Um, and yeah, uh, and that course really was the best thing uh, for me. You get wildlife film, and it's a, it's a really 
open-ended you know questions like you know how long is a, a piece of string because there is no one set set route to get into it isn't you know like like medicine where you have to you know follow a set a set path and and jump and jump through you know hoops and you know get various um um qualifications but with uh, wildlife film you can just have uh, a dslr camera and just start taking pictures um, and then that might naturally progress into you know taking video um, but at the heart of it, it, it all just stems from a common interest in in animals, of of course, um, and a love for just being outside. And I think uh, the latter, that's the the more crucial of the two two points, being outside. And uh, I kind of found found that that um, common ground with um, you know everyone pretty pretty quick. Um, but the sulfur DNA, um, it was good, uh, but I wasn't taught any camera techniques, and it was it was very much focused on on storytelling, which was great because um, at the heart of every film, of every good film at least, is a good story. Um, but it was very much focused on how to become uh, a producer, not necessarily how to become a camera operator. Um, but I was given the opportunity to go to Cuba. Uh, which again is in incredible, um, an amazing, amazing country, uh, with uh, now an amazing friend of mine called Ivan, who used to work uh, at a Cuban, at the, at the uh, I'm not going to pronounce it because I, I won't be able to pronounce it, but it, it um, essentially the film, film school over there. Um, and we made a film together on adaptive radiation in Anolis lizards. Um, and long story short, uh, I was out there for a month or so, and it was my first proper um, go at making my own wildlife film. It was about 12, 12 minutes long or so. Um, but we built a set in the Cuban rainforest in um, like a, um, a little um, shack, essentially. And uh, we were filming there for uh, a month. Um, I was learning. I was making tons of errors. Uh, Ivan was, was there to kind of help with um, making sure everything went smoothly. Um, and we just had the best... The best month ever um and as a result um the film was made with just you know pure pure love love really because if Anne and i we just clicked we just like you know got on um and uh, you can always tell when a film has been made with a, with a lot of love and fun uh, um as opposed to you know one which is kind of made with a lot of like grit and and resentment um it can feel quite laborious and quite and quite slow and you know patchy um but for me this was the film that i thought uh would be the film that um defined me um and the result that won a couple of film awards wow. um like student um, film, film awards which um which was great um and that kind of just gave me um a bit of a bounce into the industry um that, that, so as a result of that yeah that, that's amazing yeah. i mean i i never i guess i never would have pictured that like like you said my my view would have always been you'd have had to have gone to uni to sort of study film or photography and and had a real kind of background within that and sort of cameras and making films so um yeah. i guess to hear that that's that's just amazing that you i mean when when you went out to cuba how much how much experience had you got actually with a well, camera I, I, and sort of hardly any, hardly any i mean obviously we were kind of taught the the uh, basics of um camera operation I mean, um, my final year of university at Bristol, um, I joined a media team because I thought, well, I've got to try and get some type of media experience before I go, I, I go on on this MA course. So I, I kind of learned the you know basics of how to operate a camera. But you know, 
you can teach a monkey to press buttons, but actually crafting a shot and knowing when not to shoot, which is just as important, if not more, as to when when to actually press, you know, re um, record, that comes with time and experience. So that craft on like um, for yourself and most importantly, just, you know, um, failing, essentially <laughs> <laughs> learning. Sure. Um, so, yeah, no, no. Um, so, yeah, no. So um, I, I had basically zero camera experience. Just just go back to your um, initial question there. So, um, but um, you learn on the job and you learn how to edit uh, and just through a lot of a lot of timing. Mean, the film took about a month to make. I mean, I could probably we could probably do it now in about two and a half, three, three weeks or so. But, sure. you know, it, it, it just it just takes a long time to understand where your um focus points need need to be essentially so the film yeah no it was it was good um i, I was extremely privileged to go there you know i'm i'm so in in debt to ivan to invite me over uh to give me that that opportunity um but my first first job in the industry was as a researcher for a national geographic series called wild brazil um and yeah that was tough because that was um two weeks uh contract so the thing is with the wildlife film film industry or any sort of you know creative industry for uh, tv say contracts are just you know rolling so you know they can be as short as a day <laughs> to two years uh, um possibly how long is a, is a piece of string it is just never ending so um, it's quite intimidating going into that environment with zero financial um, stability. I was I came back to live at home um, after the MA course, um, and I was plunged into this this professional world that I was just fascinated in. You know, getting um, involved with, and this was the career path that I was now determined to get um, uh, to have been found found myself in. Um, and I had zero experience and I, and I I had to keep up with everyone else at their at their level um and it was terrifying <laughs> it was <absolutely laughs> um but as a result you learn you learn quicker you know um so uh my initial job uh in those two weeks was to essentially set up six six different shoots in the Cerrado of Brazil and it basically involved it was maybe a 12-hour day uh, for about two weeks um, just to make sure I was hitting those um, deadlines. I was working alongside uh, a, a, a BBC producer called uh, Peter Bassett, who made, uh, he was um, a producer on uh, Life of Birds, Life in the Undergrowth. Huge in wow, my eyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so to work along, uh, yeah, so to, so to work alongside someone of of that caliber was an absolute dream. Um, him to see 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 my my uh, film as well was just insane um but that that two week contract that rolled on to six six months until that series ended um but because i was inside all the time i wasn't particularly happy in that in that job i i enjoyed it and i was uh, and i'm grateful for that for that job of course um and it gave me a lot of experience a lot of my own knowledge and uh, and all that, you know, good, good stuff. But something was definitely missing, and that was just being outside. It's just as as basic as that. It's just just being outside. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I don't think an office-based job, even if it is for for you know wildlife film making films, not really sure that is for me. 
Um, so I thought, okay, um, let me give editing a go. <laughs> 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 so um, I then became uh, an edit assistant. So with, uh, um, with TV, it's just about who you know. Um, it isn't just just about you know like a lot of it is about who you know um so um i then became an edit assistant because the, the editor for the series uh was looking for an edit assistant i was there at the right place at the right time um so yeah i became his edit assistant for uh, a few a few months and again i i learned some really you know valuable things but again the outdoor thing was to be outdoor you need to be outdoor is what you need to be doing um i couldn't ig- ignore that any longer because with you know going outdoors uh in in, in, the, in the sense of becoming a camera operator you you are exposing yourself to um less financial stability um because the contracts are you know um, short short shorter weeks um so that was a bit of a risk but i thought you, like you know what you know stuff it like i would much much rather be happy in doing a job that maybe doesn't pay as much but it's on my own time and then you know i value time over money um when i can um so that was the real um crux for me i mean yeah just just you know being outside and uh i'm 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 so so glad i made that that decision because it's just it's pushed me as a as a person as uh, a camera operator of course um and i've got loads of experiences and lots of stories to tell and you know just incredible memories where uh when perhaps i wouldn't be able to gather as as you know many of those stories or you know memories as you know quickly had i been in an office um so yeah uh but then i think i i make itself just just after that edit um that edit some more corporate based based work um, but I was saving up the money from those from those corporate shoots to essentially buy um, decent wildlife um, kit, filming kit. Okay. Yep. Um, and after I I uh, so I contacted this charity called Save the Rhino, um, who are an incredible charity. Um, and I said, look, your online content's good, but I think I can do it better. <laughs> 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 Which that <laughs> was. Good. Picture myself, um, and I said, "Look, if you can take me out to South Africa or uh, Kenya, to one of your um, uh, main conservancies where you do a lot of of your rhino conservation work, I can make you films films for free. Um, I've I've got the kit, I've got the editing gear. Um, all, all I ask for is uh, an amazing time, and also uh, for the expenses to be paid." And they were like, "Great, okay, cool. You know, come on board." Um, so. A lot of kind of you know leading up to where I am today was just through um, free, free you know, like you know work and just trying to get enough experience under my belt without getting any you know money for it. Sure. Um, but yeah. just creating a portfolio where um, at least at some some level in the in in the industry someone can go, okay, this I you know dude's been to you know South Africa, Kenya. He's he's you know had experience working in fairly tough you know can you know. Um, or shoot you know for the one show <laughs> so um yeah um so, so i went out to south africa and Kenya. yeah sorry go on. no no so obviously you're saying you yeah. saved up for your own kit and, and i guess that was one of my main questions because i'm sure that any any kids kind of sitting out there sort of saying i want to you know film wildlife 
for a living. Um, how much of your own kit do you have to buy? I mean, you know, is it is it a camera? Is it what 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 does that look like to to start out in the industry? Yeah, sure. So um, if you want to get into filming side of things, um, it's it it can be as basic as just a Canon five five D Mark three, which is what what I had, which is um, a good DSLR camera, albeit a bit old old now. Um, only shoots HD. Um, with a decent fluid head tripod, um, a good um, stereo mic, like an H4N Zoom. Um, and I bought one of these actually, which is a Glycam HD2 2000. It's, it sounds okay. like you know, twice from like, you know, Harry Potter or something, <laughs> but, um, but this essentially just allowed me to get nice, you know, um, stable tracking shots, sure. which yeah. you can do much, much easier, smaller, lighter kit nowadays but back then that was what what i had to be like you know play with so sure. um a decent tripod and not and I, so i had a 24.5 millimeter zoom zoom lens and a, a canon 100 to 400 millimeter um, lens as well um so um zoom zoom lenses are the way to go as opposed to primes which is one one focal length um for um, wildlife filming anyway so lenses in and uh, glass obviously uh, just as important as um, cameras uh, so the lens that i had with the canon 5 5d mark 3 uh, which comes with the kit really is a, is a 24 to 105 uh, millimeter lens and a long lens of course because i'm filming wildlife which is 100 to well, i had the 100 to 400 millimeter lens um so that was really the rudimentary camera kit um that i had i saved up for that just bought it second hand um and yeah i was you know lucky enough uh for the guys that saved saved the rhino to believe me um and they whisked whisked me away off to south africa <laughs> and, and, and um, kenya um and it was an amazing amazing time and i could go i could go on about the various things that happened there you know for you know days on end really but um I think it really cemented the fact that this is what I wanted, you know, um, to get into. Every single day is different. There's so much change. Um, you come back knackered. You're pushing yourself to your physical limits, um, and also to your, like, you know, mental limits as well. But that level of satisfaction, because you go through those those you know, um, um, hurdles, it, it's 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 one massive massive challenge. There's a there's a challenge every single day, and to come come through that with decent you know rushes um rushes being um video footage clips, okay yeah right um it's was just the most satisfying feeling that i'd ever had um and i think from from those shoots again i had another epiphany it's like okay like this is what i want to do is that you know that complete realization of you know being on the back of a land rover going through you know the african bush with a camera on my on my shoulder filming i wasn't necessarily filming uh, wildlife i mean I, you know there were chances obviously to film uh, white and black uh, rhinos but uh, it was me telling the stories uh, of the rangers and uh, of and of the appeal essentially um but those you know moments when the sun's sun's going down uh, in in kenya and all you can hear is the you know grazing of the of the of you know the various antelopes there and the elephants coming towards the watering hole and all those kind of really cliche African moments that you know you see in like you know books and and you see on like you know TV and stuff. I was living that and that was that was just such an amazing tingling experience and 
Um, for the Kenya shoot as well, um, a really good friend of mine, Stephen, who's also a wildlife camera operator, I brought him along because I needed a second camera operator and he had his own kit as well. So mates going out together and filming out in, in Kenya, I mean, it was just the dream, man. It was just epic on another level. But I wasn't getting paid for it. <laughs> you know, I, I, so but at least I had something to my name as well as this other film that I made. Um, so I, I continued doing the corporate gigs as well because they bring in the money as well. Um, and then, unfortunately, I know it, it's really annoying to say, but again, it was the right place, the right time. Like with anything, I guess, you know, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't just... Um, apply to wildlife film this there's also parallels in any other you know job or you know sure, absolutely whatever you like you know consider to be a a dream dream job there are always going to be moments where you're in the right place at the right time at the right networking event and you're you know meeting people and they give you the opportunity so it's just it's you know exactly the same principle um and i saw an advert online for um the rspb's film units which historically is um huge in terms of making wildlife film they made some of the earliest wildlife films actually um and they've won panda awards and for those of you that don't know what a panda is a a panda is a is essentially the oscars for the wildlife film so if you get a panda award it's essentially getting an, um, an academy award um so i saw an advert online they were advertising for a new camera operator so wildlife in-house camera operator um and that's huge on two levels one because it's the rspb I, and i knew that i would get an incredible amount of experience working for those guys and two working for the rspb as their in-house com as their sorry in-house camera operator um is quite uh I'm just trying to use the right the right term term here um it's a it's a known known role within the industry a well-known right. role within the yep. industry Many amazing camera operators um, have essentially gone to the RSPB as their as their training ground. Um, so to be able to be given the opportunity to follow in the you know foot, footsteps of such such greats as you know John Aitchison, who in my mind is the best wildlife topside camera operator. Um, uh, he's massively into birds, um, who a species that I believe is the most challenging of all the animal groups to film um so to be following in the steps of these of these types of people was just a dream a dream coming you know, true so i i applied for the job i interviewed for it um and i don't think i i worked as as hard for that as i've done for anything else i mean just prepping for that i mean i could relay off the whole entire his, history of like the organization from, from like <laughs> now until like you know, early days kind of uh you know um the 1800s really so um yeah no no i think i worked harder for that for that job interview than i did for my actual final exams at bristol so that kind of showed how much getting that meant to me it was in this uh, amazing old um ironically hunting lodge uh, in bedfordshire um it's which is where the rsb hq is at um and the grounds are incredible lovely woods and i really felt you know settled there i thought okay great like this is it this is uh, you know starting in many ways it was and i was exposed to a whole different level of you know camera kit the real you know pro stuff so what i'm talking pro is for those camera guys out there um and even those that you know don't you can go in and um, have a look at these yourselves but uh, the aria mirror which for me is the best wildlife filming camera out there in terms of um, ergonomics um lovely lenses 
um, stills, stills lenses. Um, I was having to manage uh, the, the kit room, having to manage the, the green screen studio there. Um, and, you know, I was going off in a Land Rover Discovery around the UK, just filming British wildlife for about two years or so. So, you know, I, I can't really complain. Um, you know, it was it was great. It was a, a good job. Um, and I really learned. Well, I started to learn my 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 craft that I can't say I, I learned it because I'm, you know, obviously still still learning. But um, yeah, just kind of being in bird hides for long, long periods of time, just knowing when to kind of stop, stop recording, when to start, start recording, what to focus. I severely underestimated how difficult being a wildlife camera operator, filming wildlife was, because prior to that, I'd only really filmed under controlled conditions. So the Anolis film, the lizard film that I made in Cuba, we were gathering the lizards from the rainforest, putting them into the sets to get the nice tight macro shots, really you know, close-up shots to make the lizards look, look big, macro. Um, but in many ways, I was in control of that. I was in control of the lighting and all those bits and bobs. Obviously, we put the lizards back where we found found them. No lizards were harmed. Um, and with the rhino film as well, um, it, it was really a people film. So I was directing the rangers on the ground um, and we were just getting sort of B-roll of the rhinos. It wasn't anything, it, we weren't getting any sort of really amazing behaviour of the rhinos. It was just, you know, rhinos eating or looking interesting in the bush. Um, we weren't getting anything of any behavioral sig significance really um so to go to the rspb and then to be f thrown in at the at the um, deep end which i'll go into um in a moment um i had to come to terms with a lot of hard hard truths um because it was hard don't like no get me wrong it was hard and it it pushed me mentally more than anything i'd done prior to that so just to give you um, an example, um, the first shoot that I I went on, uh, first proper professional wildlife shoot, I guess you you could call it. Um, I'll never ever forget it. Um, I went to this aerodrome in Essex called Stone Stone Murray's Aerodrome, amazing place, World World War One Aerodrome, um, and they've got um, all the UK owl species there, as well as a whole abundance of amazing British wildlife there. They've got barn owls, little owls. Uh, they've got water voles there, um, heads, um, you name it, they've you know, you know, got it there, cuckoos. Um, and I was essentially sent out with the task alone uh, with with kit that I didn't really know how to operate. I mean, I've been told by, you know, someone there, this is the button that that does this. OK, great. But when you're in the heat, heat of the moment and it's dark and you can't find find the button, you don't have that, you know, muscle memory to be able to find it. Cause sure. You don't know yeah. what what you're doing so um i was given the task essentially to, to go out and film to to uh, try and get decent footage of five or six different species in four days i think it is which looking back at the time i thought okay well like this is what like, you know people do looking back was mad <laughs> <laughs> and i think it was a a, a test of of sorts um and i really um I, yeah if i didn't come through that experience um then i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing today so just to put you in so you know just uh, to put things in into context so i was in a hide from 
say half past three in the morning. This is you know, uh, British um, summertime before the sun's you know coming up, um, and then breakfast at about eight, which was a boiled egg, um, and then filming straight straight through because I was panicking until about seven, no, about ten in the evening actually, because again um, like the sun was you know going down there. Uh, and I wasn't getting what I wanted. Um, I wasn't getting um, the footage. I wasn't seeing the wildlife. Um, and I was just making error after error after error after error. Um, and I wasn't drinking. And I, and I I wasn't eating because in that in that moment of panic, you forget about the basic needs of your of your you know body. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have any energy. And then I was going you know to bed. Because the accommodation was like a good forty-five minute you know, drive away, so I was you know, getting to bed at, at about like eleven or so, up at about half past two in the morning, not getting any sleep wow. for about four four days straight, and it it was mad. It, it was just a bonkers shoot, and I came out of that thinking, is this what I want to do? Am I having another you know realization? Like, yeah, is, yeah. Is this what I want to be doing? I thought, well, yes, it is actually. Like this is what I want to be doing, and you know i can't beat myself up too much about it because i did get you know footage and i did get uh four out of the five uh species it is an incredible stuff it's not my best best stuff but i i did get it um and i survived and i so I, and i'm and i was able to take away incredible lessons that i mean you know principles that i use on every single shoot um that i've done after and that is to look after yourself the wildlife is important but you're more important than what you're trying to film because if you don't look after yourself and your own mental state your own physical state then how the hell are you supposed to do your, like your your job obviously the wildlife and the light dictates your your schedule but if you don't have the right prep in terms of food and you don't give yourself a break mentally kind of at lunch say when maybe the wildlife is isn't as um active as it as it was first thing in the morning especially true with um crepuscular species then you are just gonna burn out fall over and break a camera and yeah. break a leg yeah you know, yeah you aren't in park in uh, bristol you could be up a mountain in iceland and you know those sorts of errors are incredibly costly if you don't look after yourself so that that shoot i'm incredibly grateful for because that really just gave me the foundations um and the you know principles of how to do a good shoot from every i'll never ever forget uh, it was a tough experience painful um but you know uh, i don't think i i would be here here doing what i'm doing today without it so you know grateful for it really um so the RSPB was brilliant, um, and I went on many great shoots, went up to Isla, did lots of work in Scotland, filming hen harriers, which are my favourite birds of prey, just stunning birds of prey, um, filming curlews up there, went down to the lowlands of Scotland to film barnacle geese, um, incredible um, site there, you get about 40,000 barnacle geese, you know, coming down from uh, Greenland, I believe it was, or Svalbard, I forget, um, going to the east coast and filming seals at Blakely Point, and uh, filming knots and um, other wader species at Stettisham, um, and even going to Senegal to film turtle doves of all things. You know, just these amazing uh, places around around the UK um, that I feel incredibly privileged again to be given the opportunity to go to these you know places to go see these amazing wildlife spectacles. And you know, in a way, I can go back and uh, I've I've been back in a um, freelance context to film these uh, places again. So 
they've been incredibly useful. Um, but so I was at the ISPB for about two years, um, and then I kind of felt it was time for me to move on. I was living in Cambridge at the time, and I was really yearning to get back to Bristol. Um, for anyone that hasn't been to Bristol, you must go uh, or be into you know visit. It's got such a sense of community. Um, it's just been voted Britain's happiest city. Um, and I can un understand why there's a, there's a real sense of community there. Um, there's loads of really amazing green spaces. It's a, a plethora of you know creativity, um, and that's what I was really yearning for. Um, so I came back to uh, Bristol, um, and I thought, stuff it. I'm just going to go you know freelance, which was a bit of a bullshit move because in my head I wanted to be at the RSPB for about five five years. Um, up being there for for two, but I felt the time was right for me in that in that moment just to you know commit, take a risk, uh, which I think is really important in in life, and go back to Bristol. I'm always under the impression that if you want to do anything, you should just just crack on and do it. Obviously, consider the benefits and the costs because you know there are always going to be benefits and costs and risks. But I would prefer to live a life knowing what the outcome of um, an, act, uh, an activity was um, than not. I don't want to live a life with a regret, essentially. So I thought, stuff it, I've got to be back in Bristol. I went back and I went I went freelance. Um, and both my parents are teachers, um, were uh, teachers, and I retired. No one in my family has done anything like, you know, like, like this. It's, it's always been quite a stable job. So having to figure out how to how to make a living uh, in a really competitive, very financially insecure industry was difficult. But if you want to do it, then you just find find a way to do it. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know. And, and, and so, so yeah. what? What in in terms of because uh, you know. What what I'm kind of really picking up, which which seems to be very much mirroring my journey and and lots of others, is like you said, yeah. when when you start out, you just make it happen, right? And and there's a certain yeah. percentage that I think is true of any industry where it's about who you know. Like you've already said, you've already kind of mentioned that, talked about it, like getting to know people, networking. But then, it, like in terms of taking that from a job and obviously the knowledge that you gained from actually learning how to film and then obviously becoming a freelancer and having to assuming like become self-employed and manage your own tax and expenditure and, and everything else where, where like did you find anybody or was it literally a case of like you learn on the go and you learn from person to person or on the internet or through books or what what, what did that learning process look like yeah a, a great uh, question a, from like a tax point of view that was purely um internet <laughs> and this is a shame we don't get taught about these sorts of things in you know school like how how to do taxes and you know the law i think that you know these should be in integral parts of you know the education um system in in the uk uh but i i had no idea what i was doing there but um so the internet provided me with, with you know lots of answers um i joined the camera operators union called back and they've got lots of in info uh for taxing for um camera operators freelance creators um but in in terms of having to find a way and how to get a job and how to get shoots under my belt and ultimately um money 
Um, that was just through coffee meetings with other camera operators and producers. So yeah, um, so kind of finding out how to forge a career as a freelancer um, was really about meeting people for for coffee, interviewing people, <laughs> um, and just persisting um, if they weren't answering you um, in um, emails and you know messages. Um, and I think that's really key. Um, a lot of people say that you're only successful in wildlife film if you're able to stick it out longer than any other anyone else essentially um so because it is hard it's competitive um people are extremely busy people are often away abroad on on shoots but if you're able in whatever means that you can able to just you know stick it out um then an opportunity will arise and you've just got to grab it um but coffee meetings really uh meeting people asking basic questions as to how do you make a living and you know when how how did you do it when you first first started out um was yeah you know crucial and um i kind of got a common a common answer from from everyone else um common common ways of kind of uh, and i was able to make a bit of uh, progress in the first quarter of that of that year and then the second quarter um was really was you know really when um, things started just uh, to kick off planet earth 2 had just come out at that point and i'm i'm just emailing every single producer and assistant producer um looking at the credits that's always a, like i like i mean a good good okay. tip so you know credits um it's quite easy to, to find the um emails of people um if you search you know long and hard enough so you've got to be a little <laughs> bit sneaky but <laughs> um but um yeah no i contacted i, I contacted every every single producer uh met up with maybe about three out of the eight or so um and they gave me some really worth worthwhile advice um and um i did what what they asked in terms of becoming a, a drone operator you know if you want to be a successful camera operator nowadays you have to have many many strings to your bow you've got to know how to you know fly a drone so anyone, one, what in fact sorry anyone that wants to get into wildlife film get yourself uh, a drone and uh, and you know get yourself qualified as um a commercial drone pilot um it's kind of crucial nowadays so getting those you know seeds seeds of uh, knowledge there um yeah that was you know crucial because there there isn't a book that you know tells you how how to do it um per se you know because every everybody's path is different in you know wildlife film they come from various different backgrounds some, some some people have, have had, you know, careers in, say, banking and have then scrapped, scrapped it for, you know, wildlife film, just complete, you know, chalk and cheese industries, really. Um, so you do meet some really fascinating people and it's really nice and fun to hear their individual journeys and their personal stories about how they've got into the, um, into the industry. And, you know, it's a lovely industry to be in. Uh, people like like-minded in, um, industry, obviously, but um, people are... Um, very very conscientious and uh, kind, I think, in the wildlife film film industry. And um, yeah, no, it, it's a lovely environment to be in. Um, and you meet incredible people who may seem quite quite quiet, but they're you know strong as steel. You go on a shoot with some of these like people, and they're some of the most physically mentally strong people I've ever ever met. Um, so it's inspiring to be around people like that. Um, but I am, I'm, you know, rambling now. So, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so I, I guess my 
my kind of question that that came in why well, I really wanted to get you on the podcast is that um yeah. I as as you know I, I was sort of big into conservation over many many years when I started my chocolate company in 2004 yeah. um yeah. we gave 10% of all of our profits to animal conservation charities starting with palm oil because that was a that was something that was affecting the chocolate industry and confectionery. They were yeah. using palm oil in, you know, most of, of the, well, still the big companies still do. I mean, it, I think it's kind of getting a little bit better known. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd always, I'd loved the idea of working with animals. My my only two passions in life were animals and, and food. And I kind of, I ended up actually, my first ever job was working at a falconry centre, voluntary for a couple oh, of years. And, and, you know, like you British conservation, but we were rehabilitating British birds um, that obviously been, yeah. you know, handed to us by the RSPCA as, as kind of specialists. So I, I had a real passion and love for animals. And I, in my, you know, in my earliest memories, I, I was home educated and, one of the only things my parents could get me to do uh, passionately was to watch nature documentaries. And, and like you, I, I spent oh, my childhood yeah. and uh, my kind of education watching Sir David Attenborough and, and yeah. you know, the, the big guys out there and the really wild show and, and all these sort of things. Yeah. So I'd always, I guess, I'd seen, you know, in, in the perspective of TV and media, this idealised kind of career of you know, filming animals. And then I I guess I got a little bit of a clue when meeting some people in, in conservation, you know, what was really going on. And um, I met Save the Rhinos and, and a, a bunch of other charities at different events. And we ended up donating to them and, and others. And um, and I actually met uh, Beverly and Derek Jabeur, um first through email. Yeah. And, and then I actually met them in Bristol for the Panda Awards. And they were actually screening oh. their Eye of the Leopard film, which was just like the most amazing experience. And, and I guess f what I'm kind of alluding to is the question in my mind, because I remember asking them, well, like, what, what's it like? You know, what's it actually like to have this uh, super amazing lifestyle where you go and follow a leopard for two years uh, and do yeah. nothing else? Right. And, um, I suppose my, my question is everybody sees it as like the dream job. You know, you're, you're kind of swanning around the world, first class on aeroplanes and you're dropping into countries. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that like yeah. I think that's the perspective that people think that you kind of like sure. drop no, in no, no, and no. you you Maybe. you come in in a motor chicane, a Land Rovers with kit and you set yeah, up your yeah, bell yeah. tents. And so what like what's it really like? I mean, you know, what about it is a dream job and what about it isn't? Okay, so um, let me try and give you an example uh, rather than talking around an example. So um, recent shoots where uh, we can talk about this. So, um, okay, uh, so I went to Zambia um, December 2017 um, and I'd done a whole string of freelance jobs uh, prior to um, I'd done some stuff for the Smithsonian Channel and, and this was another Smithsonian Channel project. Um, and the brief for this shoot was I was to, uh, I was to go along with a producer director um, and we were to shoot two 50 minute observational documentaries on predator conservation and black rhino um, translocation. Fine. We only had a month to do that, um, which is a crazy amount of time to fit in to, to just to, you know, film that level of content and to get a decent story. There wasn't um a lot of time leading up to those shoots 
And so the planning in, in place um, naturally wasn't going to be as scrupulous as, say, uh, a shoot that had 10 months of planning before. So um, a lot of things were left unknown. Um, and one of the things was uh, travel, uh, for one, on how to actually get to these you know, places, um, and also accommodation. Um, and we were told that, I mean, I'd never met this producer before, producer-director uh, before, and I was told that we were to be um, in the same tent together for a month. Now, that, for me, was quite a shock. Um, and the glamorous side of things that you know people see this is the harsh harsh like um, you know re, um reality of it you're often with people for long periods of times in you know inev inevitably uncomfortable and tough conditions with lack of sleep for months on end and you don't know this from your person so that's that's difficult you know sure yeah producer uh, director that i was with was the nicest guy on, um, on earth matt he was awesome and we had an, an amazing month but it was tough and i think our personality types were good which is possibly why we were you know picked picked to work um to, but it tested me physically like i've never been tested before and also mentally I, I, and i've just you know said exactly that about the rspb shoot but to date the zambia shoot for me it was far from anything, you know, glamorous. Yes, I was, you know, on the back of a Land Cruiser filming, but when the exhaustion seeps, seeps in and when you know that you've only got three hours sleep and the next day you're up again to film because the schedule you have no no con control over, you've got to dig, dig deep. And it, it hits you pretty quick that, you know, can I can I do this actually? Can I have I got it in me physically and more so mentally to get up in the morning, put on the same same clothes that I've been wearing for the past two weeks because it's been so so hot. I'm just like you know sweating every everything's dirty. Can I can I do this? Um, and you're often eating food uh, that isn't giving you great amounts of energy. Um, it's not the nice. It can be like you know ball boil in a in a bag you know space based food um you know it, it's it, it can be tricky so but the only way to get through those 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 moments and and also you know i'm not getting paid a great deal here in it i'm getting paid as a second camera operator camera assistant so you know um from a like you know financial point point of view the money isn't particularly good either so You've got to try and search for those like moments of is this really worth it? And yes, I got really close to amazing species, cheetahs, wild dogs, lions, black black rhinos tracking out with like you know rangers. And those are the the moments that I take take home. And everyone that I know always says that you really appreciate a shoot in hindsight. When you're in the moment, you don't really appreciate everything that's you know going on. Um, you can have a black rhino there, literally 10, 10 meters away, possibly closer, in in my case. Um, and all you're thinking about is just getting the right shot, making sure that you know camera settings are ideal, 
um, making sure that you're able to get a shot because you are aware of how rare this moment and opportunity is to you know grab and you've got to get it. <laughs> um, but once it's gone, then it's gone and you weren't actually in that moment able to appreciate it. And I'm I'm always a, a digitally con constructed image. I'm essentially watching it on on TV as opposed to you know watching it there with with my own eyes. So that's a, a misconception as well. Obviously there are moments where you feel you've got enough in the camera to actually take a peek and just have a real look at what you're you know filming. But if it's if it's a moment that is gonna be there and gone, um, you don't really get a chance to take it in. And I, I think that's again um, an experience and uh, a moment for me that I really had to to learn and you only learn learn that through you know, doing it and um it's quite it's quite difficult because then like people ask you how how like, was it being five five meters from a black rhino that was about to charge and you know chuck you up in the air whatever and you go yeah like yeah it was like good it was it was good but it, it didn't blow me away because i wasn't there in the moment i wasn't actually present i was very much in an, an an office state, you know, um, state of mind. I was watching this through a mini TV, as opposed to really taking it in. But if I had taken it in, then maybe I wouldn't have, you know, got the shot. And yeah, at the end of the day, yeah. getting the shot is the most important thing. I, I suppose in a way, you're like you're sacrificing your own enjoyment at that moment to give that moment yeah. to other people. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, there are moments. So, you know, um, it, it depends on the species. So, I was filming toke macaques in um, Sri Lanka's old capital, Polonnaruwa, an amazing site. Um, and the macaques are everywhere, and they're really habituated to people uh, because the researchers go every day. So, in those in those moments, you don't need to be looking down the camera all the time. In fact, if you were, then you would just miss everything that is going on, and you wouldn't be able to get any shots because there's just so much going on. You've always got to be ten or twelve. 20 paces ahead of the animal to know where you need to be to get that that shot so there are cases where you you are taking it in because you're actually looking at it but again you're thinking from a framing point of view and a camera point of view and a and a position point of view um rather than just having a coconut and like you know just chilling out with the animals and you know <laughs> watching them you know go by which does does happen but traditionally towards the end of the shoot when you've got everything in the can um so that's a misconception for sure that you know it's it's all dreamy on location being on location is tough um again like i said physically tough it's dangerous um in zambia we got charged by a herd of elephants serious really serious <laughs> um uh you know and which may sound exciting but in the moment i mean you know it's it isn't it isn't fun sure. in the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. It's 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 really life or death. Um, there's a lot of creepy crawlies and various other un un I know comfortable truths that you have to deal with. You have to deal with the heat at night if you're say living in a tent in Africa. You, you can't get any sleep, and if you're doing night shoots in Africa, you have to sleep in the day, and you'll have a fan on you, and you know that's just you know, you know blasting out 28 degree heat at you every day. Yeah. So. It isn't glamorous. It really isn't glamorous. But you do you get to see, in the end, some incredible things. And more importantly, you get to meet the most incredible people. And I think that, for me, is worth it 
possibly more than the animals. The guys that you meet, the people that really just dedicate themselves to the front front line of um, conservation, local guys on the grounds who have nothing but are just willing to share everything. These people that really just that you're super 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 privileged to meet. For me, those are the real gems of a shoot. The wildlife moments, don't get me wrong, are incredible, and I've got plenty and plenty. Like, you know, just a whole you know stack of memories, and that's incredible. But they're often appreciated, like I said, in hindsight. But in the in the moment when you're having a beer at the end of of a really hard filming day, and you're talking to the guides and you're learning their you know stories and journeys, like you know whatever, those are the real moments of a, of full a, appreciation and you really feel present in those in those moments um and i think those are the real moments of gems um those you know be, um sorry uh, beautiful moments on a shoot that you really fully appreciate then and there sure um so it, yeah it, it must have the whole experience must have really impacted your worldview so i'm like i'm i'm really interested from what you thought you knew about conservation to having sort of been out there and experienced it, yeah, you know, yeah. in the front line, how, how has that impacted your life, like apart from your career? Sure. Um, so the, the best example of this, I mean, in terms of working with, um, save, save, I know, I didn't realise to what extent conservation actually was until I was out there working with the rangers on the grounds. For me, rhino conservation or animal conservation, especially with quite um, highly, you know, um, volatile species as, you know, rhino, which are, are you know, getting poached um, for the horn, 60,000 pounds per you know, kilogram the last time I checked, which is crazy. Um, um, I thought that, the, you know, conservation before going in was about land, land management and about um you know re resources for farmers human animal conflict um not enough space for the rhinos to have you know graze and to have you know various home home uh, ranges and territories um but really it was nothing to do with that it was more about keeping the right people on the right side so it was really about ensuring that the rangers on the ground that were looking after the rhinos patrolling the areas making sure that the poachers um, knew that they were about, obviously, to deter them coming in to shoot the rhinos, keeping those guys happy. Because at the end of the day, these guys on the ground, um, they could easily turn to a cut of you know, rhino horn, and they and these guys, if they get a cut of that of that horn, they don't need to work ever again. Mm. Um, they are rich, and their mm. you know families are rich, um, and everything's great. And of course, that is a massive, massive temptation, especially you know in you know Kenya or whatever. So, um, the real conservation is just about keeping the guys on the ground happy, making sure they've got decent boots, decent mozzie nets, decent tents, because they're often out for about two weeks at a time patrolling you know parks. Yeah. Um, making sure that they're you know um, paid enough, but just basic, basic, basic things. Just making sure that the sole of your boot is is intact and is you know fully fully waterproof making sure uh you know like i said you know um mozzie nets really basic things that is conservation at that at that you know level just keeping people on the right side so that they can then do their their job properly and want to do their their job continuously um and that really struck struck home for me um so um yeah and i think coming out of that um it, may, it really made me appreciate that 
you know, the conservation isn't just about giving money to an organisation and then just hoping for the best. It's, you know, I'm in, eternally grateful to see where that 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 money act, actually goes and how basic, you know, like twenty pounds a month can go to just changing someone's life uh, and making sure that this 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 person is on is on the right the right line of of you know conservation. Um, yeah, you know, and. Another good example, Senegal. Um, I went there with the RSPB um, and we went to a park which had just been decimated. Um, you know, all the trees had been uh, taken down, all the megafauna had been eaten. Um, the last thing they were utilising from the land was the land itself, was, was you know, the, like, the actual soil, the bare soil and the, and the sand. Um, and they were selling that. And it was just a wasteland. You know, it, it, it looked a bit like... Um, you know how in the Lion King, after the you know Highness take you know Raw and Scar take take takes where everything is just it was yeah like you know pretty similar to that. Sure. Um, yeah, and uh, I think that kind of hit hit home to me that you know um, we're not we're not really using the planet in the right the you know the right way. Um, agriculture has just completely smashed it to bits, um, as is the case there, and. Um, yeah, um, as, as a result, um, and just just through you know constant pressure, I guess from people, you know, peers in the wildlife film industry, many many people are vegetarian, many people are you know um, vegans. Um, I'm trying to adopt a more vegetarian lifestyle, um, and I love love cooking. For I, I love cooking meat. I love to eat eat meat. Um, however um i can't ignore the fact that it's not good for my health it's not good for the environment um so um i'm really i'm just having it maximum once a week week now i'm not the type of person that i, I could just go cold cold turkey sure i've got to just do it gradually 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 um and uh yeah so i think seeing the effects of um agriculture on the environment uh is kind of i think yeah exacerbated I, sure and, and i think that i should become yeah I, I think i think it's a really interesting thing because having um obviously come from a food background myself um you know i studied a little bit of sort of biochem and molecular food sciences and stuff so sort of you know got into yeah. that side in in my career and like you i i was i was kind of vegetarian for for quite a while um i, I was kind of un, unluckily dent, dealt some cards which meant i had onset rheumatoid arthritis quite early and right. i and i struggle with a lot of plant foods um they oh, flare up my, my joints and digestion and stuff so i i'm right um you know, I, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm eating a, a lot more meat because of that. But I think coming from a point of view, a bit like you in the sense that the agricultural system that we've got is so damaging. And, and I think, like like you said, it, it's, uh, it's a really big passion of mine. I've been studying permaculture for, for some years now and, and really getting into this idea of, um, you know, balancing our ecosystems again. And, and like you said, I, I think agriculture as we know it today is a, is a, terribly dangerous thing to be doing because obviously not only are we destroying the insect populations we're dis destroying the microbiome in our soil we're you know we're, we're we're devoiding our land and soils of, of nutrients and and even the plants that we do eat um you know and, and this is something I, I find quite interesting that 
um, a, a lot of people will talk about, you know, plant nutrition and stuff, but those plants have to be grown in nutritionally rich soil to, mm. to be nutritional themselves. So, um, yeah, I do, I do think this, this is like the challenge right now for humans is how, how do we work out how to go back to a more, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, ecologically Absolutely. minded agricultural system of growing, you know, growing plants. And, and if we're going to eat meat, that it's meat that is doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is there's a, a couple of guys down the road from me who've got uh, a longhorn cattle. And the guy, oh, yeah. it was a, a very, very old breed in the UK. And he's basically got it now to a point where it was on the endangered list. And now it's not because he's bred so many of these cattle. And he's got, um, I think, three or four hundred uh you know and obviously they're they're in the shropshire hills he doesn't even know how many he's exactly got they roam free it's 100 percent organic grass-fed and you know so i i think it can be done um and and sustainable agriculture can be done but i just think more people need to sort of talk about it um and absolutely. you know I, and if yeah you know you're absolutely right and i, I think a dialogue uh, you know people of our generation and the next generation i think that that dialogue will will become a lot easier because there's a lot less stigma attached to talking about the environment um you know it's amazing you, they, you know um mates of mine who have little to zero interest in conservation and the environment they're really making actively positive decisions in their in their diet based on what they've seen on social media and various you know documentaries on net Netflix, whatever. Um, but, you know, these are the last last people in the world, in my books, that would choose to not eat eat meat, which is positive, you know. And I think it's only it's really hard to kind of, you know, fathom how are we going to do this? But I don't have the answer to that, you know, question, unfortunately. But what I do have is just an ability to make a decision every single day uh, to maybe not not eat eat meat. Um, I don't need to eat eat me i can get my you know protein from plants how do you know animals get their you know protein they get their protein from from you know plants obviously so i don't need to eat meat uh, or you know dairy even really to have um a healthy life uh, in my book so just making those kind of micro decisions is going to a massive positive impact on the on the planet and you know just you know going back to your to your point Louis, about like you know uh, when you're on a shoot uh, do you see these uh, these um environmental effects on the so sorry these um these effects of agriculture on the environment how how has that kind of changed my you know perception of diet and, and all that but also you know um, plastic consumption i mean obviously that's that that's been yeah. a really hot hot um you know topic over the past year and a half thanks to blue planet Two. um but you know it isn't just just happening like the past two years this has been going on for you know decades and decades and decades it's only until recently that it's really been exposed at that you know, national level and really been ac acknowledged properly and you know pmqs i guess fairly fairly soon 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 after due to you know public pressure but um plastic pressure sorry um plastic pollution i mean I've not been in the industry long enough to know what an environment without plastic looks like. Um, every single shoot I go to, you know, you can be in the most remote parts of wherever, and there's always a, a bottle of sunning, or there's 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 always some type of plastic there, and it's really sad because you think that no one's been to this this you know part of the world world before, and like you know maybe they haven't, whatever. But then you see a a plastic bottle just you know wash up on the shore or appear in a gannet's nest or whatever um 
and it's sad you know it really is now a really common thing thing to see even in like the most like you know like isolated parts of the planet i mean i was up in iceland filming up in the west fjords filming arctic foxes um back in september last last year or so um and you know that this is the northernmost um tip of iceland and i was up on the on the fjords there and there's just a plastic bag just you know rolling past and it's you know, there, there are no trails as such. It's it's as remote as you like. And there's just this plastic bag of like the local Icelandic supermarket there. And I, it's just, it just, I guess, just got carried in the wind and just, it's just sad, man. It's really sad to see this. Um, thankfully, it didn't get in in way of of of, of um, the uh, shot. So it was absolutely fine. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, you are seeing it um, wherever I go. There's, you know, plastic. And I think, that and diet um, are the two largest things that I think we can really make a positive decision on. And, you know, I, I've got rid of, you know, plastic bottles, plastic packaging in super supermarkets frustrates me no end. And, you know, whenever I can, I go to someone who do, who I can, you know, um, the local um, greengrocers say, and I can just pick up in like a you know paper bag, which, you know, you've got to, you can't just uh, rely on paper. We need, you know, you know, trees as well, but, for me, it's better than you know having it in, say, a plastic bag, of course. But um, yeah, just trying to make make those micro decisions every day is inevitable. So yeah, <laughs> sure. And and I think there's there's so much enablement of it now. I mean, there, there's so many, there's so much more access, I think, than ever to uh, you know local food and being able to buy online and being able to buy direct from people and you know. But but you know, I I think I think it's a challenge. But like you said, you you can't. You can't save the world just on your own, but then you can be part of something greater and, and making those, like you said, those small decisions to take a cotton bag with you to the supermarket and don't exactly. get a plastic bag. And, you know, yeah. um, I mean, it, it, it's really nice to see that Britain has finally caught on with this um, no waste supermarket trend, you know, and, and I really hope that that, you know, begins to take off more because I think just little things like that. It used to drive me round the bend that you know, running the chocolate business for as long as I did, I'd say sixty percent of the time the packaging costs more than the things that were in it. You know, and, and really? yeah, you know, and and the unfortunate thing is, obviously, if you didn't have that, most consumers won't buy it because yeah. they don't they don't want to buy a, a boring box. Yeah, you know, um, so it. It, it was that really difficult balance. So for us, we did what we could. We used recycled cardboard. We printed with natural dyes. We used biodegradable wrapping. So right. it, like little little things that you could do. And we couldn't always be 100% because, you know, sometimes a retailer would just dictate that that's the way it's got to be. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I do yeah. hope that it's a movement that, that we can start to push towards. And, and I'm sure that, you know, wildlife film, as a as a storyteller and a medium is going to do so much for for the generations by illustrating what's really going on because i think a lot oh, of it is absolutely is, is, thought, yeah. it's like detachment isn't it you know that because you don't see this stuff and i i'd been campaigning uh against palm oil for for many many years and, and it took me until 2012 to actually go to visit malaysia to to see what it what it was really like and even it's shocking yeah i I just sway sways of it yeah i mean we we drove for six hours from kuala lumpur down to johor baru and and like 
you see pockets of other rainforest. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, a, a really harrowing and emotional experience to, to see that. But I, but I think that mm. thank God for the internet in a way um, that we can, well, we can know, show this stuff, it's... right? You know, Absolutely. we can, we can illustrate what's going on and through the power of video. Um, I mean, I, as, as you know, I, I spent, um, so eight months last year in Mexico and they've got some really yes. big conservation problems going on because the, the Yucatan Peninsula, you know, a lot of people go on holiday to play the Carmen and Cancun and these kind of places. Um, and they've got no sewerage system. It doesn't exist in the Yucatan Peninsula. So yeah. uh, I met a conservationist out there, who, a turtle conservationist, and he was saying that one of the hotels in Cancun, I think, empties something like something like 13,000 litres an hour in peak holiday season into the ocean uh, of raw sewerage. So, yeah, it was, you know, it was really interesting to see, you know, in, in my own aspect, you know, the way that some of this was, was affecting the environment. Um, and, and I guess, you know, let, let's kind of start to, to round off on a, on a slightly more positive note. Um, and, and I think that, you know, wildlife film and, and storytelling is such a, uh, a powerful tool. And so um, I, I guess, like, my question is, how, how do you see your role in, in the film industry like what this is a bit of a cliche question but you know where where do you see yourself kind of growing in 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 the industry and um you know i i don't know how much you can say but maybe your sort of input on where you feel the industry might be heading for sure no no absolutely so as it stands um if i can just talk about the industry first so um just just going back to that point of storytelling is a positive uh, medium for pr uh, promoting conservation as a really good and I, i've not worked, worked on this um production i was a little bit late um coming into it unfortunately because i just went um freelance as they were starting it but there's a netflix series called our planet which is starting imminently um and it's the guys that made frozen planets uh planet earth blue planet the hunt um a team called Silverback Films, and they've worked with uh, David Attenborough and the WWF uh, to make a conservation-led um, natural history blue chip series, which is the first of its kind. And I'm, I've, I've not seen it. I've got friends that have been working on it. Um, but this is exciting for me because this is what I've been wanting to see for the past 10, 10 years. Um, the fact that it, this is going to be able to reach 150 million people um, and it's conservation uh, and also the beautiful you know wildlife films that we see um i think that's going to be an interesting um collaboration and hopefully a step in the right direction so there there are movements the industry are is um listening to um people and you know listening to the environment um more importantly so that's definitely a positive step in the right direction um as opposed to so so for, for me, um, I still want to pursue the line of a camera operator, long lens camera operator, top side, um, working uh, mainly with with birds, uh, but also mammals. Um, I want to really hone in on that on that craft as a long lens camera operator. That's what I love doing more than anything else. Um, and I want to just pursue that for a few more years. But ultimately, I want to to start making my own wildlife films but not wildlife behavioral films 
conservation films. That's my sort of 10 year projection is just to start making my own conservation films. Once I've really understood the craft, I really have, you know, I've got decent connections. Um, I, I've, I've been to, you know, various parts of, of the, of, of the world seen uh, where the issues are um, and if there's a decent story in there. Um, but I think what's more important isn't, is about telling the story in a different way. You know, like we're always, we're so, so used to seeing the man on the hill telling us about the history of a, of an area or, you know, um, someone with a middle-class accent going into a third, third world, world country and telling us about, you know, the various issues there. I don't see that as a positive, progressive way to tell conservation stories. Um, so in the next 10 years or so, um, I'm going to just try and figure out my own way of, you know, telling that. And it, possibly it could be without a presenter at all. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my 10-year projection, I guess. But it's really encouraging to see the wildlife film industry based in Bristol uh, primarily moving in the direction of a more conservation focused series that's a really you know progressive step and that isn't you know to say that we are going to see more um frozen planets and stuff because that is actually in um in the making but um you know uh, we are going to be seeing um that that type of show as well because there's a real demand for that and it'd be silly to uh, to not listen to you know but a conservation led um narrative to wildlife film is essential for um, the sake of the environment and the planet because you know kids kids growing up are going to be more and more used to hearing about it and if they're you know seeing if they're used to seeing it not only on you know um instagram and social media but also through the films that they're you know, di digesting then um you know it, it will just just become normal to not block your you know um to not have uh, plastic bags not not to choose you know plastic bottles over say, you know, like a, a metallic bottle that, you know, you can, you know, reuse single use, you know, plastics versus um, a metallic bottle or, you know, choosing a predominantly vegetarian diet or, you know, vegan diet as opposed to meat. So um, the more we can normalize these sorts of things through series such as Our, Our Planet, um, the more progressive uh, the state of affairs are going to be in, in terms of saving this, uh, you know, planet that we all live on. Yeah. yeah amazing and and i, I think yeah. i guess to, to round off my my the the aspects of the podcast is sort of inspiration knowledge opportunity that that's what it's all about so i so i guess that the final question is we talked about the inspiration you know and, and how you kind of came to that through a kind of yeah. like a lot of us do an unconventional path yeah. um the knowledge so, i guess like you were saying was just people to people learning being in the field mm -hmm. having the experience but then I guess the opportunity taking that step. I just want to glean from your last few things. If if there's somebody out there who's saying, "I want to do this," I've been thinking about doing it my whole life. Um, I'm taking the first few steps. I'm thinking about buying the kit. Um, when when you go from contract to contract, because I you know I, I know I mean looking at your Instagram, you've been to some amazing places over the last sort of couple of years. How yeah. is it? Yeah. Is it all down to people? Or is it down to social media? Is it down to LinkedIn? Um, you know, what, what, what does that look like? And, and how, do you, how do you kind of build yeah. those relationships with those people to create those, con you know, the, the contract to contract work? I, I would say it comes down to the following. If you're interested in people, you're interesting to them. So 
my philosophy with this is if I'm going for a coffee meeting with a producer for say Planet Earth Earth Two, I'll watch a lot of what what they've you know done. I'll tailor that that email to them to make sure that they're aware that this isn't just a cookie cutter email. I'm genuinely interested in what in what they have done, and it would be a great opportunity to be able to find out more about what what they are doing, and if if there are any opportunities for me to work collaboratively with them. So I think that principle goes a long way and can be applied to lots of different you know contexts. But um, essentially, I always try to move the conversation away from from me and move it onto them. Um, ultimately. I'm interested in them. Obviously, I want to with with them on a shoot, but the only way to do that is for them is for them to want to have a conversation with me. Um, and the best way, really, to get people to to engage is to listen to them and to, you know and to really understand what makes them them tick and 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 therefore provides the right answer um, after which will guarantee you will hope hopefully guarantee you um a successful relationship going going forward so i would say with yeah emails and emails and emails and coming for you know coffee meetings to all these you know different producers um is useful and obviously it's it's good for your face face you know to be out there but it's just taking it to that that next next level and really showing people that you are interested in in them you're not just using them you you want to be a part of their their you know journey and and their series and and as a result you know <laughs> you you can then form a connection that you know ten years down the line may well be able to give you another break and another job so it's really about forging relationships and unfortunately in the wildlife film industry it's better the devil you know so people would much rather go on a shoot because you know like I said in Zambia yeah, I'm in a tent for a month with someone I don't know that's not the ideal scenario obviously they want to be doing that with you know with you know messy with and they've they and they haven't killed each other so you know um it's better it's obviously better devil uh, better the devil you know you'd much rather go on a shoot with someone you know you you can get on with rather than someone who may actually be better in terms of getting the shots but is a nightmare to deal with on location so um it's yeah it, it's it's about making sure that you're interested you're responsible you've got a good sense of humor um and you're able to take criticism so the most important thing i feel really your most important skill is just listening listening to what's going on listening to what people want from from you um and just listening to other people's opinions um uh, because at the end of the day if if you aren't able to listen then you really aren't going to get anywhere Sure. And, and I, I found that myself, you know, where I think a lot of people in, and you must get it. I don't know whether you're on LinkedIn, but, you know, I, oh, yeah, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I get an awful lot of junk on LinkedIn and cookie cutter messages yeah. from people that so, you, you can quite clearly see. They haven't put a single moment's thought into it. It's no, just copy, no, no. paste, copy, paste, copy, paste. Just spam, and, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, sure. And um, it, it's a shame because, you know, probably they've got good intentions. But, you know, a lot of the time because they haven't put that personal touch on it I, I you know i'll respond because I, I try and respond to everyone but 
you know, they're not going to get the same response from me had they tailored something. And um, I, I, I myself uh, do an awful lot of business through sort of social media and LinkedIn. But I now, I'm, I'm in the habit. I make a YouTube video. I upload it onto a onto like a private link, and then I send it to them. You know, because I think that like a video. I think is like even more so than it's it's such a personalized thing to be able to send that to somebody uh, and to show them that you've actually bothered to take the time to to do it. Absolutely. No, I can agree more. And I think at our at our heart, at our root, we want people to like us. I think that's just a, a general, you know, human um, behavior, isn't it? We, we, we all want, you know, people to like us. We want, you know, people to get on. So if you feel as if someone is in is interested in you and why have they like, you know picked picked you it doesn't matter what you know position you are you could be a series producer for say planet earth 2 but why is this you know person picked picked my series as opposed to this other person's series well yeah. you always keep like you know comparing so yeah no absolutely um tailor it to that person make make them feel feel special um and be genuinely interested in that person as a result you'll be an interesting person you'll stay in the mind and hopefully an, an um, opportunity uh, will arise because of it amazing yeah. fantastic and and so finally tom um Tell everyone what they can see your work in. I'd I'd love some kind of little, yeah. uh, you know. <laughs> so and then what I'll do in the show notes, I'll I'll kind of link the names below, so everyone can see your amazing work. Um, I cool. I don't get as much chance to watch TV and stuff as as I used to do. Yeah. As I, I'm, I'm yeah. you know, uh, I tend to work a lot these days. All the world, man. Yeah. Sure. Um, but yeah. um, yeah, I, I certainly try and tune into you know whenever you're doing something, done some amazing work. So yeah, please tell everyone where they can see your stuff so the most recent um uh, series that my work was fe- uh, fe- featured on was a bbc series called bbc's um, earth's great rivers um and that's on the iplayer at the moment um and i shot on the third episode of that series the mississippi episode and i shot a sequence on pelicans um and um i've done a lot of work on the series canada a year in the wild which is a channel five series that's still up on uh my five um on demand um uh i've done some stuff for the smithsonian channel and love nature which is well love Nature is an online uh um tv nature um uh channel essentially uh i've been doing some work uh they're filming uh toke macaques and the various conservation films that i mentioned so the, the rhino translocation and the predator prey um conservation uh films um they're a little bit harder to find i don't think those have actually come out yet so what people need to understand is it does take a long time for these series you know to be made so even though i filmed that well over a year ago doesn't mean that it's actually been made fully and it has actually been been you know shown you know so the pelicans i filmed like a year and a half ago or so and it's just about come out um there's a sky one series that's coming up i can't reveal the name of it yet um but if you follow me on instagram say you'll be you'll the sheets i've been on um, advertising the various shows that my work will be featured so that's tom rolling camera um and the next series i'm going to be involved with is really really, um exciting is the new bbc landmark series again i can't reveal the name um the name of it but it's it's the new um, attenborough series which is going to be uh coming out 2020 um so i'm off on a shoot in a few weeks time um and i can't wait it's gonna be good so very exciting yeah tuned yeah Awesome. So, is it, uh, have you have you met Attenborough yet? 
you know what? I actually haven't. Um, I just need to shake his hand and just say thank you, and I'm done. <laughs> then I can just like, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'll do, Tom, I'll put everything in the show um, notes. Um, anything I, I'd what I'd I'd like um, if if we put some of your camera kit in the show notes as well, yeah, so people uh, people can get hold of you. I'll put all your social media and everything. But yeah, thank thank you so much for for joining me today. Um, absolute pleasure. I have to reiterate, if anyone wants any further advice or you just want to get in touch to say, say, say hi, drop me a message on Instagram. That's how I'm kind of most active in terms of, you know, uh, messaging nowadays. So um, I'll get back to you. And yeah. And if you're ever in you know Bristol and, and want a coffee uh, to meet up or, you know, whatever, any sort of um, professional advice and I'm about just let me know and I'll be happy to do so okay that's amazing Tom well thank thank you so much for for joining me today um and um yeah I hope hope to get you back on in the future to have a bit more of a chat about what you do and get into deep uh deep storytelling mode next time but um, yeah thanks again for joining nice one Louis thank you so much cheers bye see you in a bit cheers bye bye